This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. But in reality, it's part nine overall in our look at this book of Ephesians. And chapter five opens with, well, one of the most profound scriptures in the New Testament. Uh, It's one of those remarkable verses that really should stop and make us think. It doesn't come much bigger than this. Ephesians 5 and 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. The word imitators here is mimetai, which is where we get the word mimic from. So to mimic something is to copy something, is to imitate something. Whenever photocopiers come out at the beginning, particularly in America, they weren't called photocopiers, they're called mimeographs. Because they were mimicking something, they were imitating, they were copying a graph or a photograph or text. And so that's what a photocopier does today. And even though it's not the original, but it's a pretty good, very reasonable copy of the original. But how in the world can we, with all of our faults, with all of our feelings, even with our sins at times, how could we possibly hope to imitate, copy, mimic Almighty God? How could we, how can we, do that? How can we even be remotely close to doing that? Uh, Think of the attributes of Almighty God. Think of his omnipotence. All-powerful, almighty. Well, surely none of us can say that we're all-powerful, we're almighty. Uh, Think of his omnipresence, that he is everywhere present at the same time. None of us could be everywhere present at the same time. going to be one place at one time. Even Satan himself can only be one place at one time because we're finite creatures and God is infinite. What about his omniscience? His all-seeing, all-knowing ability. None of us could claim to be all-seeing or all-knowing. In fact, Paul says that now we see through a glass darkly Now we know in part. But the good thing is, of course, thankfully, that God does not expect us to be omnipotent or omnipresent or omniscient because we're simply not God or ever will be. However, God has other attributes and characteristics that we can mimic, that he wants us to copy and to imitate and to be like him. He's merciful. He's compassionate, he's loving, he's patient, he's persevering, he's faithful, he's kind, and a host of other things. And all of these are things that he wants us to mimic, to imitate, be imitators of God as dear children. Now we know that he is perfect, and we're not perfect. And so you may say, well, what is the point then? If we could never rise up to that perfect standard, what's the point? Well, the point is God tells us through his word to 
try to live as much as close to that as we can possibly get in our humanity, in our humanness, to try to do that. Because the closer we want to try to live like God, the closer we become like God. And so these are the attributes of God that he wants us to, to imitate. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. I follow after, that means, that I may lay hold of that which for Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I haven't quite got there yet. I haven't taken hold of everything that he has taken hold of me for. But, he says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so even the great apostle Paul, he says, I'm not there yet, but I'm striving after that. I'm <laughs> pressing on. I'm following after with everything that's in me to be more godlike than I am today. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Now, dear children here is tacna agapita. Tacna agapita. And agape is love <laughs> in the Greek language. So it literally reads like this. Be followers, be imitators of God as children of God's love. The fact that God loves us deeply and dearly, he desires us, we are his children, and he loves his children with all our faults and feelings, friends. He still loves us. Thank God he does. If he waited till we were perfect like him, we would never love us if that was the case. But in all our humanity and imperfections and faults and feelings, he still loves us Amen. intensely Amen. and continually and dearly. Therefore, as imitators of God, as we could say his dearly beloved children, there is no greater incentive to be an imitator of God than that. <laughs> children who generally grow up with a loving father, or mother, or both. They want to grow up to be like them. They admire their qualities and attributes, don't they? They admire their quality of compassion and tenderness and love and faithfulness and goodness and kindness and all these lovely attributes. They admire that. They see that in their parents growing up, and that's what they want to imitate. How much more us who has a perfectly, who has a perfect heavenly father, who never fails, who never makes a mistake, who never gets it wrong like us, how much more can we admire him and all of his attributes? Oh, what love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And then in verse two, he says, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. I want you to notice that the first verse in chapter 5 
is connected to the last verse of chapter 4. Even though we stopped at the end of chapter 4 the last time. But the connection is the word therefore. That's the connector. And the last verse of chapter 4, he says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Think of those attributes of our Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Kindness, tender-heartedness, forgiveness. Think of the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember that great multitude on the hillside for three days? They sat there listening to the Lord Jesus teach. And, and no doubt all of their packed lunches were long since gone. And at the end of the three days, when the disciples themselves were hungry and wanted to send the crowd home, or at least send them into some villages to buy food for themselves, ah, send them away, they said. But Jesus says, no, he says, you feed them. I'm not going to send them away. They've been here with us three days. They're hungry. Their bellies are empty. We've got to do something about that. That's the, the kindness of the Lord. He just didn't want to dismiss them. You know, he, he felt, well, they've been listening to me for three days. They've been here. They've been studious. They've been faithful to do this. I'm not going to send them away. I want them to be fed. And even though there was nothing to feed them with, seemingly, but the kindness of the Lord wanted their bellies to be filled. Think of the tender-heartedness of Jesus. Think about that leprous man who came to Jesus. And you know, when a, when a leopard would come, because everywhere that Jesus went, he, he was surrounded by people. He was, he was, if you could use modern day term, he was the biggest celebrity in Israel. But you know, when the word came out, got out that Jesus, the healer, was coming to town, everybody came out to meet him and see him and try to greet him and touch him. And the leper came to Jesus. And can you imagine a leper coming, shouting, unclean, unclean, as he had to do by law, and how everybody would scatter? Because nobody wanted to touch him. Nobody wanted even to breathe the air that he breathed out, except Jesus. The tender-heartedness of Jesus. Not only did Jesus cleanse him, but he reached out and he touched him. Just to get another clean human being to touch him. That must have meant more to that man than anything has ever meant in his whole life. Because nobody would ever touch him. But Jesus' tender heart reached out and touched him. The tender-heartedness of Christ. The blind man who was shouting, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And the people said, shut up. You're creating a disturbance. Go away. But Jesus stood still and called him. The tenderheartedness of Christ. Think of the forgiveness of Jesus. When those soldiers were driving those spikes through his hands and his feet, what did he pray? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea who I am. They don't know they're nailing your son to this cross. 
please forgive them the sin. Remember the woman taken in adultery when they dragged her into the temple precincts and they flung her down at his feet in front of that great crowd that would be in that court that day. How humiliating and embarrassing. But Jesus forgave her. Woman, where are your accusers? No man accused me, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. See, these are the attributes that God wants us to mimic, to imitate, to copy, to emulate. And then the Apostle Paul here, and this seems to be a recurring theme, verse 3 and 4, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be even named among you as fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather <clears throat> giving of thanks. May I remind you again that these Ephesian believers were living in a society that's not dissimilar to the one that we live in today. Because their society was highly sexualized, it was very promiscuous, just like ours is today. And even their religions, even their worship involved lewd acts. And it was very acceptable and fashionable for the Greeks to do this. In fact, if you didn't do it, you'd be thought to be weird or unusual. Uh, and now these believers who had lived that kind of lifestyle up to when they, when they get saved, now they're still in it but not of it, and it's in their face every day. It's just right there before them every single day, just like us today. Every time you turn on a TV, it's there in your face. And it's not going away, is it? It's getting worse continually. And so when you turn your TV on today, almost every talk show or every comedy program or every sitcom or every thriller or detective series is riddled with innuendo, with suggestive talk, with... I don't even want to say it. But you know what I'm talking about. You I mean, sometimes you're, you're watching a program, and it's a good program, and it's, it's, it's well done, and it's well thought out, and suddenly in the midst of it, you get all that stuff that you just say, I don't really want to watch that. It just put me right off. And that's the world that we live in. And so Paul says that Christians should not be mimicking their behavior. We, we ought to be set apart from that. We ought to be different. And so for us, there should be no coarse language or filthy talk or dirty jokes or, or swearing. I'm amazed at the number of Christians who actually swear. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to be like the word that you come out of? You say, well, I'm trying to reach them. That's not going to reach them. They just look at you and say, you're no better than I am. You haven't changed. What's the difference? 
but we're to be different. We're to mimic God. We're to imitate the Lord God. And so he says it's not fitting for us. Not fitting for us. Not something we should be doing. We should be steering well clear of that. Uh, He's into the glory now, but a good friend of mine many years ago, he was a car salesman, a very successful business, and he told me, and he was the most gentle, nicest believer you could ever have met, just a true gentleman. And I talked to him one day, and I says, you know, I says, you have a lovely reputation among the brethren. You know, that you're gentle, that you're well-mannered. He stopped me, he says, hold on, do it. He says, had you known me before I got saved? <laughs> he says, I had the foulest mouth. And I could hardly believe it. Because he didn't give you that image. But I was the foulest mouth. He says, I was an embarrassment to my wife, to anybody around me. But he says, the first thing that happened to me is just God just cleaned my mouth up. <laughs> and Paul here saying, it's not fitting. It's not right. But then he says, but rather giving of thanks. That, that almost seems out of place here. It almost seems, oh, why did he say that? He's, why are you talking about thanksgiving in the midst of berating people for living that way and saying those things? So it seems a bit odd. So what will be giving thanks for? Giving thanks to God for everything that is wholesome, that is lovely, that is a pure, that is of a good report, as I said in Philippians, that is moral, that is true, because every good thing that God has ever given to man, Satan has twisted it, has distorted it, has degraded it, and has made it into something ugly. Everything. The beautiful, intimate, personal, physical relationship between a man and a woman that's only to be enjoyed in the bonds of marriage. How that has changed. How Satan has made that something that's either irrelevant or you can make it whatever you want. You can have any lifestyle you like with anybody you like and well dare you say anything against that because you might offend me. Or I'm going to take it, you hate me because you disagree with me. And that's where we are right today in this world. Too many believers are too lax when it comes to living pure lives. Too many believers are too lax when it comes to living pure lives. It's a fight, it's a battle. Because you're battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So it requires disciplines to think right and to act right. But too many believers have this attitude, well, it doesn't really matter because grace covers it all anyway. And that's one of the mantras today that grace is spoken of in extreme measures to whatever sins you've ever committed, ever sins you ever will commit, ever since you're committing that, everything's forgiven anyway, so it doesn't really, really matter. It does matter. And Paul is making sure that it matters. Paul 
is making sure we get the message. And so too many believers put themselves in compromising positions, thinking, I'm able to handle the temptation. No, you're not. You're kidding yourself. You're deceiving yourself. And the devil wants to keep you in that compromising position because he knows you will fall. There's nothing sure you will fall. So don't put yourself in that position. Keep clear of it. That's what Paul's trying to tell us here. He's not kidding. He's not having it. He's been very strong in this. Look what he says in verse 5 and 7 to 7. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man, who is an idolater, because you can make an idol of this, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, or kingdom of Christ and God, let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't let anybody tell you that it doesn't matter, that God understands, that God will just let that go. He won't. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. What could be clearer than that? Hmm. If you lie down with dogs, you'll get up with fleas. That's the old country saying, isn't it? Hmm? And it's true. Be not partakers with them. Does that mean you can't tell a joke or you can't have a laugh? No, of course not. Of course you can have a laugh and a joke, but make sure it's clean. Make sure it's not near the knuckle. Make sure it's not suggestive or an innuendo. Make sure it's none of those things so that we can laugh and we can joke and we can have a bit of fun and a bit of banter, but not like this that Paul's talking about. Verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you're light in the world in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Once we too were darkness, not just in darkness, but were darkness. But now we are light, not just have light, but are light. We are a light to the world around us. Now, by and large, have you ever found this? Maybe in the workplace, that you go in there and there's a conversation going on with a group and you walk in and the conversation just stops. (laughs) Because they know you're a Christian. And if they know that you're a true Christian... And you don't just talk the talk, but you walk the walk. Then, that which they've been talking about, they don't want that exposed to you. But that has just exposed them, just by walking in there. Now, we know there's others 
who will be bolder than that, who will deliberately go out of their way to say things to you and do things to you to try to get you to rise to the bait. Well, don't rise to the bait, but just live your Christian life. Be the light of the world that you're supposed to be and see what happens. And so often, other people will cut us out of their conversation or maybe cut us out of their lives. When you become a believer, sometimes some of your old friends do not want to be your friend anymore. Why? Because our life is counterculture to what's going on in the world. So we don't want to laugh at their vulgarity. We, we don't want to joke with them about those things that are inappropriate and indecent. We don't want to do that. Uh, and they know that. We, we have no desire, folks, to sleep around and to booze the weekend away. So we're going to work on Monday morning. We're not talking about those things. And very often that's what they're talking about. But we're different. Christ has saved us, redeemed us, cleansed us. We might have been like that in the past, but we're not like that now. That might have been our past, but it's not our present, and it's certainly not going to be our future. First Corinthians 6, Paul lists a lot of things that we that the world's like. And then he says, and such were some of you. But now you're washed, now you're clean. You used to be like that, but you're like that no longer. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you life. But dead men can't raise themselves from the dead. Only God can do that. It can only happen with a power that is beyond ourselves. But when we are spiritually risen from the dead, then we've got to walk in this newness of life and in this light. The raising from the dead is God's part. The walking in the light is our part. You remember Lazarus? When Christ spoke, Lazarus come forth, and he was dead four days. Jesus raised him from the dead, but he had to walk out of the tomb. The raising from the dead was Christ's part. The walking out of the tomb was his part. And this is what it's like in the Christian life. God does things to us and for us and in us, but we've got to walk that out. We've got to live that life now. If we say we have the life of Christ in us, well, how does that show? Where does that show? How is that in practical terms? Because that's what the world wants to see. That's what we're looking out for. And so there's a part that God plays, there's a part that we play. In Romans 4, Paul, uh, talking about Abraham, he said he was justified by faith. And Paul is thinking about Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, Moses says that Abraham's faith was accounted unto him for righteousness. 
So Romans 4, Paul's saying that Abraham was justified by faith. But when you go to James, and you go to James 2, James is saying, it was just just faith that justified him, it was his works. Uh, And Luther didn't like that. Because Luther had lived all of his life by works, trying to gain God's favor. And then when he saw the scripture, the just shall live by faith, it totally changed his life forever. And so anybody talking about works, he says this was an epistle of straw. It shouldn't even be in the Bible. That was his opinion, which he was wrong, of course. But you can see his background. That's where he's coming from. But James says that Abraham was not just justified by faith, but by works. And he was thinking of Genesis 22. Because in Genesis 22, that's where Abraham took his son up to Mount Moriah to kill him under God's orders. And of course, in the end, he didn't have to do it. But that was a work he was going to do. And it justified him before God. So who's right, Paul or James? Both are right. Paul's talking about the root of faith. James is talking about the fruit of faith. And the root of faith saves us. But then there needs to be the fruit of faith. After that, there needs to be some, something come out of us, something growing out of us, the fruit of faith. For you are saved by grace through faith. That's the root. Then we serve through faith. James 2.18 James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. Want to know where my faith is? Watch my works. That'll prove my faith. And, and Paul writing 1 Thessalonians 1 and 3, writing to Thessalonian church here, says, remembering your work of faith. So there's the fruit of that faith. We serve by grace at the root. Remember those grace gifts that we talked about in Ephesians a couple of weeks ago? That's fruit that comes out of our lives. And then verse 15 and 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, which means wisely or carefully. Not only as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time. Don't waste time. Buy up the opportunities. Make full use of your time. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. The night comes when no man can work, so we need to work on the day. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If I could paraphrase, I think Paul is telling us to be wise in dealing with the times that we are living in. Because the times that we're living in are evil times. So we're to be walking wisely and carefully in our generation, in our day. And be careful on how we redeem our time. Our wisdom is not from this earth. It's not earthly. It's from above, James says, in James chapter 3. So it's not fleshly wisdom. It's the wisdom of God that he imparts to us, mostly through his word. Mostly through his word. And so the world has wisdom, but it's, 
It's an earthly wisdom. It's a sensual wisdom, the Bible says. And it doesn't last. It's forever changing. And that's why our wisdom, the wisdom of God that we get through his word, never changes. It stands the test of time. So we can redeem our time that we're living in. We have to be able to discern what the will of the Lord is for our times. And part of what we're doing tonight is that very thing. What we'll say tonight is discerning the times we're living in, but particularly looking at God's prophetic time clock. Boy, every believer needs to know what that is and what they should be looking for, the signs. Because we're coming close to the end before the Lord's return. None of us have lived 100 years ago. And probably none of us will be living in 100 years from now. The only time we're living is right now. The only time we've got is guaranteed is right now, today. Can't even guarantee tomorrow. But we're here today. So this is our generation. This is our time slot. This is our moment in history. The church has got a 2,000-year-old history. We've got a tiny little part of that right now. It's the only part we have. So therefore, we have got to redeem this time. Make full use of it. So whatever you're going to do, you've got to do it now. Whatever way you're going to live, it's got to be now. Can't be in the past. Can't be in the future. We're not there yet. It's got to be now, today. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we need to know the will of God for our lives, for our church, for our community, for our nation, for our world. And that's a big task, isn't it? And then he says, and we're starting to wind up, he says, verse 18, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation but be filled with the Spirit. People who are drunk with wine act unwisely. They talk foolishly, they act foolishly. And the more you drink of it, the more your mood will change and the more your personality will change. Which is not a very good advertisement for a believer, is it? You don't want to be doing something that's going to alter your mood to make you foolish and talk foolish and act foolish. You lose your inhibitions. You end up causing trouble for yourself, for others around you. You end up making bad decisions, unwise choices. But if we drink of the new wine, if we drink of the wine of the Spirit, that's the wine. That God wants us to drink from. Then it will change us, but it'll be for the better. Then we'll act wisely and carefully and not make as many foolish mistakes as we've done and not say as many foolish things as we've said because we're filled with the Spirit. So let us be wise and filled with the Spirit of the living God. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 19 and 20, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making singing and making melody in your hearts unto the Lord, giving thanks for all things to God the Father in the name 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice it says, speaking to yourselves on singing, on making melody. Talking to yourself is usually not a good sign of, <laughs> is it? <coughs> except, except you're talking to the Lord. Or you're thinking about scripture. Or a song rises up in your heart. Or a psalm comes to your spirit. You begin to speak it. Maybe even under your breath. But you're going along. Because when it's in your heart, it's going to come out over your lips, isn't it? Speaking to yourselves. Now that can be one of two things, or both. It can literally mean speaking to yourself, just yourself. It can mean speaking to yourselves when you, when you meet with each other. Hmm. Doesn't the Bible say about those who talk one another off one another about the things of God. The Lord hearkened and heard it. And the book of remembrance was written before him. And so when you get together and you're talking about the things of God, it's good. It's encouraging. It's uplifting. It's better that than talking rubbish, isn't it? It's uplifting. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Hmm. I was going to say, but I'm not saying. Christian worship has a wonderful tradition of singing. Wonderful tradition of singing. And what's fascinating is over the years in various revivals, in various revivals, new songs has, has come up, came forth, has been birthed. And new styles of worship. You know, when D.L. Moody and Iris Sankey, who was his worship leader, when they came from America to Britain at the beginning, the Brits didn't like it. Because we just sung hymns. And Sankey was singing songs. And they didn't like it. And some of his, their worst critics were saying these songs were, were moody and sanctimonious. But eventually they came to like them. And they ended up in hymn books. I, I was, a couple of years ago, I was visiting a, a, another church. And there was another Pentecostal or charismatic. I'll not tell you what denomination it was. But the first three songs they sang with great gusto were all songs that was written by Pentecostal charismatic writers. And I don't even think they knew. And I didn't say. And a lot of those songs that would come out at the start, church, oh, I want to sing that. That sounds a bit happy-clappy. But guess what? They're singing some happy-clappy stuff now. And some of them has been bold enough to get some drums into the church. Can you imagine that? When organs come out at the start, it was the devil's music. And churches didn't want it. So things change. Things change. The Welsh revival was the singing revival. The Welsh loved to sing. They're famous for singing. And when revival came, guess what? 
they sang, and they sang, and they sang for hours. They would sing. When they get together, that's all they just sang and sang and sang and sang, and the glory of God came. Thousands were saved. Thousands. Sometimes the preacher never even got to preach. Hmm. The greatest, the most enduring songs are songs that at the heart of them worship the Father and the Son. And when the Father and the Son is lifted up and the cross is exalted in the work of Calvary, that's what the Holy Spirit anoints. And a lot of our songs today doesn't do that. And some of the modern songwriters has caught on to that. Maybe it's been pointed out to them, I don't know. And some of them are going back to the old hymns. Now, they maybe put a different slant or a different tune on it, different maybe melody on it, but they look at some of the words and they see how it uplifts Christ. And I think that's wonderful. I remember Chris Bowater, some of you younger ones won't remember Chris Bowater, but there was a time when he was the top songwriter in Great Britain. And I remember him at Bible Week in the tent saying this very thing. He says, for too long, we put the hymn book aside and we missed the great theology of the old hymns. But he says, now we're starting to bring them back. And the Gettys are doing that very thing. Well, they're writing hymns now that has the feel of hymns to them and try to put good theology into that. So, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, whatever that may be, singing and making melody in your hearts unto the Lord, giving thanks for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just close with this. In this past three sessions, we have been uh, basically telling about how to walk out our Christian lives. And in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul said we were to walk differently. In chapter 4, verse 1, we're to walk worthily. In chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, we're to walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, walk as children of light. Chapter 5, 15, we're to walk carefully. So there's five different admonitions how to walk this Christian life. And so Paul talking to the Ephesian church in his generation that is not unlike our generation. So what applies to them most certainly applies to us. That's why the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture enshrined in Holy Writ for us today. If this is not for us today, then who is it for? Is that just a history lesson of 2,000 years ago? No, the Holy Spirit says this is what we are doing today. In part 10, God willing, next week, we're going to look at the section regarding husbands and wives and children and parents and employees and employers. See, this is very practical, isn't it? The scripture, if nothing else, is practical when it comes to living out our Christian life. So God willing, we're going to look at that, all of it or some of it, next week. And of course then, towards the end, you get into spiritual warfare. That's a big subject. We'll have a look at that, God willing, 
also. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.